You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Today we come to the end of Paul's really, really, really long answer to the question that the Corinthians had about whether it was okay for them to eat food sacrificed uh, to idols. If you remember in Corinth, there were temples to idols everywhere. And it was the norm in that culture to, to go and offer sacrifices in these temples to these gods because the belief was, if I offer to the gods, the gods will bless me. And, and people thought, hey, I want to just make sure I diversify my portfolio of the gods here, get the, all the gods covered. And so it was a normal thing uh, in culture there just to go and do that sort of thing. And so the question was, if you've become a Christian, if you believe in Jesus now, if you, if you only believe in one God, is it okay to eat this meat that's been offered to idols? And Paul has been answering that question since the beginning of chapter eight, and it's a pretty elaborate answer if you've been with us. Lots of nuance in his answer, lots of pastoral wisdom and counsel, lots of examples from Paul's own life, lots of examples from the history of Israel, lots of things to consider. And the Corinthians had to be like, dang, Paul, we're not going to ask you any more questions. You talk too much. Can't you just give us a yes or no? Can't you just give us an absolute? Just tell us what to do. And so last week, Paul gave them an absolute. In verse 14 of chapter 10, this was the absolute. He said, flee from idolatry, meaning don't participate in the temple feast. Because when you do, you're participating, you're joining yourself with false gods. He says, actually, with demons. So you're in danger of spiritual destruction. And besides, when you do that, you confuse other Christians and you, you're, you're in danger of maybe leading them back into idolatry and spiritual destruction. So don't eat in the temples. That's a black and white issue. It's, it's really clear. Idolatry is bad, so flee it. Stay out of them temples, right? It's clear in the scripture. But what about the scenarios that are less clear, less black and white? Like when you buy meat from the market and you don't know where it came from, maybe it was sacrificed to an idol, maybe it wasn't, I don't know. What about when someone invites you over to their house and you don't know the origins of the food that they're preparing for the meal? How do we navigate those less clear scenarios, those gray areas where we don't have a verse for it to tell us what to do? Because the Corinthians were like, hey, Paul, we may leave the temples, but we're not leaving Corinth. We still live here. We still live in this culture, among the people of the culture, among the practices of the culture. And so how do we live in this culture with so many shades of gray and yet remain distinctly Christian? How do we navigate the gray areas of the Christian life? And the answer that Paul gives to that question uh, reminds me of jazz music. The Christian life is a lot like jazz. And some of you are like, oh, brother. Todd, didn't you bring a jazz record to church a couple years ago? And the answer is yes, but today I brought a different one. <laughs> this is arguably uh, the greatest jazz record uh, ever made. This is Kind of Blue by Miles Davis. Even if you don't like jazz, you've probably heard this record or something on it or you've heard of it. Uh, what makes 
kind of blue so incredible is that Miles Davis plays trumpet and he leads uh, the musicians on this album is he wrote some simple frameworks for each of the songs on the album and then the musicians were free to improvise within those frameworks. On the back of the album cover, this is what it says. It says, Miles conceived these settings only hours before the recording dates. Isn't that amazing? And he arrived with just sketches which indicated to the group what was to be played. Therefore, what you hear in these performances is something close to pure spontaneity. The group had never played these pieces prior to the recordings. And almost without exception, the first complete performance of each song was a take. That's incredible. The musicians had total freedom to improvise, and the only parameters were the frameworks that Miles Davis gave them. They weren't free just to play whatever they wanted. That would have been chaos. But when they exercised their freedom within the framework they were given. The result of their collective effort was a masterpiece. Let me say that again. When they exercised their freedom within the framework that they had been given, the result of their collective effort was a masterpiece. How do we navigate the gray areas of the Christian life? Paul says we have total freedom to live as we want, within the framework that God has given us. You see the framework there in verses 24 and verse 31. Those verses kind of frame out the, the whole passage. Verse 24 at the beginning uh, says this, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. And then towards the end, verse 31, it says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's the framework, the glory of God and, and the good of the neighbor. And there in the middle, total freedom, right? How do we navigate gray areas in the Christian life? Number one, we have total freedom. Number two, within God's framework. Number three, while following the way of Jesus. Those are our three points. We have total freedom within God's framework while following the way of Jesus. Let's talk about our freedom first before we build out the framework. We have total freedom. Let's look at it. Paul gives two real-life scenarios to illustrate the freedom that we have as Christians. And the first one is found there in verse 25 and 26. Look at it in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible and you want to open one in front of you, there's some there in the pews. It's on page 900 there in those Bibles. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 25, Paul gives this first scenario to illustrate our freedom. He says in verse 25, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everyone who reads or heard this letter read could, could relate to this scenario because everyone went to the market uh, to buy food. And the reality in Corinth was that some of the meat that was sold in the meat market had originally been sacrificed to idols. Not all of it, but some of it. But there was no way to tell just from looking at it. You're like, well, that looks like a steak to me. That's all I can say. It looks like pork chops to me. I, I have no idea where that came from. Paul says, though, eat whatever is sold in the meat market. Emphasis on whatever. 
In other words, you've got total freedom to go to the store and put whatever you want in your shopping cart. You don't have to stand at the meat counter at HEB and ask, hey, is this certified idle-free meat, right? You don't have to do any kind of inspection on the matter, right? This is, comp- this is eat whatever, which is a complete 180 from Paul's past as a Pharisee. In his former life, he would have been very concerned about the origins of the food and how the food was prepared. But now in Christ, he says we have the freedom to eat whatever. Why? Well, he says, because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's, this is a direct quote of Psalm 24, verse one. The earth and everything in it belongs to God. It doesn't belong to idols. It doesn't belong to false gods. It doesn't belong to demons. It belongs to God because God made it. First Timothy four, verse four. Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. I can imagine God at creation saying to Adam and Eve, hey, all this is for you. Enjoy it, walk around in it. Feel free to eat and and, and be satisfied. Enjoy it, it's all for you because I made it and it's good. So enjoy it with thanksgiving. Eat whatever. Paul gives another scenario. In verse 27, look at verse 27. He says, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. I love that Paul just assumes that the Corinthian Christians are in close relationships with their non-Christian family, with their non-Christian neighbors and friends. They've been called to separate from idolatry, but they have not been called to separate from the world. Right? They're, they're not called to just create like a Christian commune or subculture. They are to be right in the middle of the world, like personally engaged with people. And so Paul's saying, hey, if you've got neighbors inviting you over for dinner, that's a good thing. That's a sign of relationship. And again, he says, if that happens, eat whatever is set before you. Like it's possible that, you're, that the steak your neighbor, neighbor is grilling for you was at one point sacrificed to idols. And Paul says, but you don't have to figure that out. Don't worry about it. It's not like it's somehow spiritually poisoned. Don't give your host the third degree on where he bought the meat and how he's preparing it. Don't be that guy. You have total freedom to eat whatever is set before you with one exception, one caveat. You see it there in verse 28, in the first part of verse 29. But... You're at this meal. If someone says to you, hey, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience, I don't mean your conscience, I mean his conscience. I love how Eugene Peterson translates this in his message translation. He says, if your host or someone else goes out of their way to tell you that this food was sacrificed to God or God is so-and-so, you should pass. Even though you may be indifferent as to where the food came from, he isn't. And you don't want to send mixed messages to him about whom you are worshiping. See what he's saying? Like if someone announces that the food has some sort of religious significance, then you should abstain from it even if it doesn't have religious significance to you. Because maybe it's a non-Christian, maybe it's the host, and he sees the food as somehow sacred, right? Because it's been offered to one of the gods. 
Well, in that case, you don't want to go ahead and eat with him as if you condone and affirm his idolatry because you love your friend. You love your neighbor and you want them to know the one true God. So the loving thing to do is not to raise a glass over the meal and say to Aphrodite, (laughs) to Zeus. You wouldn't do that. That's not the loving thing to do. The loving thing is to abstain, but also say why. I worship Jesus now. Here's a little bit about him. Maybe it's a Christian who makes the announcement. They're a new Christian and to them the food is spiritually defiled and so they can't eat it in good conscience. And you're their brother in Christ. You're their sister in Christ. So you love them and you don't wanna put them in an awkward compromising position where they feel pressured to eat or where they feel pulled back into idolatry. So you abstain, you defer for the sake of their conscience out of love. You have total freedom, Paul is saying, to partake in the meal, but you also have total freedom not to partake in the meal for the sake of someone else. Like you can have whatever it is, but you don't have to have whatever it is. You are not enslaved to food or drink or choices. You're free. You're free. Paul is saying in these verses that we have total freedom as Christians to enjoy God's creation and to enjoy our friends and our neighbors without always burdening our own conscience by going on idol hunts and looking for idols in every scenario and situation. These scenarios were gray areas for the Corinthian Christians. They were gray. There wasn't an absolute word from scripture on what to do about it in these situations. So Paul gives them freedom to partake but he also encourages them to pay attention to the consciences of others. We don't have this particular gray area. We don't struggle with meat sacrifice to idols. It's not a gray area in our culture. We got others. We got tons of gray areas that different Christians come to different conclusions on, right? Like what kind of music we listen to, what kind of films we watch, what kind of television programs we watch, or our practices with alcohol, Some can partake with thanksgiving. Some see it as really dangerous. For some, it's idolatrous and addictive. Some say, Jesus turned water into wine. Jesus must love wine, right? But others say, haven't you read Proverbs? Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Christians come to different conclusions. What about yoga? If you go to yoga, Are you spiritually aligning yourself with false gods? Or are you just doing a little healthy stretching, right? Little downward dog, never hurt anybody, right? Downward dog has definitely hurt me at some point. I I could tell you that for a fact, not spiritually. What about how we spend our money, how we vote, what we wear? These are all gray areas. They're, we don't have clear word from scripture on them. We have, and we have total freedom in Christ to decide about these things. We have flexibility to move around, to, to be spontaneous, to improvise. Like jazz musicians, we have total freedom, but within a framework, right? Within the framework that God has given us. Let's talk about the framework now. That's our second point. Look at, let's look at God's framework. Many of the um, Corinthian Christians would have affirmed what Paul was saying about freedom. They would have been like, yes, Paul, preach on that. We love freedom, right? But their their life tended to revolve around their own freedoms, right? One of their favorite slogans that they lived by uh, was there in verse 23. Look at verse 23. 
you see the slogan, it's in quotes. All things are lawful. They love to say that. We've already seen this in 1 Corinthians 6 when they were justifying their sexual practices. They said all things are lawful. In other words, everything's permissible in Christ. We're free to do anything in Christ because we're under grace now. We're not under law. All things are lawful. And Paul's like in verse 23, yeah, but not all things are helpful, right? Not, not all things are, are beneficial. But then they say it again in verse 23, all things are lawful. And Paul says, yeah, but not all things build up. Not all things are constructive, edifying. See, the permissibility of something is not the only deciding factor when considering whether or not we should do it. Like, just because you're free to do something doesn't mean you should, right? What else do you need to consider? Well, look at verse 24. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. There's the first part of the framework, the good of our neighbor. Our freedom is limited by the good of our neighbor. That means we can't have a me first approach to life, which is pretty countercultural. In a city like Corinth, in a city like Austin, we tend to live with sort of a me first approach to life. It's also counter human nature. I wake up thinking about me, right? It's easy to think about me, my wants, my desires, my freedoms, my needs. Uh, I don't have to be told to do that, but I do have to be reminded to remember the good of my neighbor. See, I need God's framework so that my freedoms don't run amok in the world. Verse 31 gives us the other part of God's framework. Look at verse 31, towards the end of the passage. He says in verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, again, it's, it encompasses everything, do all, to the glory of God. There's the other part of the framework, the glory of God. Paul says, hey, you like the slogan, all things are lawful, you guys are into that? He's like, Here, here's another slogan, all things to the glory of God, right? That's a better way to live, all things to the glory of God. And what I love about this is that this, the context for this really lofty command to glorify God is something as mundane and ordinary as eating and drinking. That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about eating and drinking. There's nothing more ordinary and mundane than that. We tend to think about glorifying God in the extraordinary moments in our life. We're on a mission trip. We're sharing our faith. We're serving in the, somewhere in the city. We're doing something extraordinary. We're glorifying God. Or we think about glorifying God in the spiritual moments of life. We're here at worship. We're praying. We're reading our Bible. We're glorifying God. But Paul says here, we can bring honor and praise and glory to God by what we choose to eat and drink or what we choose not to eat and drink or our motive for eating and drinking. Pastor Stephen Um says, our daily activities, as simple and ordinary as they may be, should be aimed at God's glory. The shape of our lives is meant to make the beauty of God light up brilliantly to those around us. I love that. The shape of our lives is meant to make God famous. Our choices, our lifestyles, our actions in the most mundane matters are meant to call attention to God, to show the brilliance, the glory of God. Well, how do we know if we're glorifying God with our choices and with our actions on these mundane matters? Well, not surprisingly, the glory of God is intimately connected with the good of our neighbor. 
Look at verse 32 and verse 33. Verse 32, he says, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Now in verse 32, when Paul says, give no offense to anyone, it's actually a stronger word than it sounds like uh, in English. Uh, He doesn't just mean don't offend anyone. He doesn't just mean don't hurt anybody's feelings or be polite, be tactful, be considerate. Give no offense literally means don't cause anyone to stumble. Some translations translate it like that. Don't cause anyone to stumble. Don't trip them up, spiritually speaking. Like don't do anything that would lead them into idolatry. Don't do anything that would condone their idolatry. Don't do anything that would lead them away from Christ. Don't don't do anything that would keep them from coming to Jesus and believing in him. Paul says, in everything you do, don't seek your own advantage, but seek the advantage of others so that as many people as possible might be saved. So we can know we're glorifying God with our lifestyle choices when we're seeking the advantage of others rather than our own freedoms, right? So that people might believe the gospel and be saved. So that's the framework for our freedom. The glory of God and the good of others and they're intimately connected. They're not separate things. They go together. It's the two great commandments, isn't it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the framework. If we exercise our freedom within that framework, we're doing all right. We're doing all right. Now, let me get practical for just for a second. Practically speaking, how do we navigate the gray areas of the Christian life within this framework? I wanna give you a simple diagnostic tool taken from this passage, the four H's, the four H's. When confront, if you're confronted with a gray area and you're trying to decide what to do, ask, is it helpful? Is it harmful? Is it habit forming? Is it honoring to God? Like, is it helpful? Like, do my choices in a particular matter Like what I watch, where I go, how I spend my money. Does it help me grow spiritually? Does it help others grow spiritually? Is it edifying? Is it beneficial? Is it helpful? Is it harmful to me or to others? Like does my behavior cause a non-Christian to ignore the gospel or to disregard Christ? It's like, well, Todd's a Christian, but money seems to be the thing that really makes him happy in life. It's probably, it doesn't seem like it's Jesus, so I, I'm just gonna ignore Jesus, right? That's harmful, right? Or, or does my behavior cause a brother or sister in Christ to stumble into sin, to fall back into idolatry? Is it harmful? Is it habit-forming? This actually comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. In 1 Corinthians 6, 12, he says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So does this thing have power over me in some way? Do I have to have it? Do I, do I find myself planning for when I'm gonna get my next drink or make my next purchase? Am I enslaved to this thing? Is it habit forming? And finally, is it honoring to God? Can I watch this movie or this TV show and honestly say God is glorified in this? 
Does my participation in a particular event or activity, going to this concert or buying this thing, does it bring honor to God in the eyes of others or does it hurt his reputation in the eyes of others? The four H's. When it comes to gray areas in the Christian life, we have total freedom. Isn't that great? Total freedom. But within a framework that's good for everybody, God's framework. And finally, while following the way of Christ. And I'll just close uh, briefly with this. While following the way of Christ, look at, look at chapter 11, verse one. It's actually unfortunate that this is where the chapter break falls in our Bibles. You know, originally this was a letter, so there were no chapters in it. Uh, and and I, I don't know why they put the chapter break here because it makes it look like Paul is starting a new topic. Uh, but ver, uh, verse one of chapter 11 is actually the conclusion it's Paul's conclusion on this whole matter of food sacrificed to idols, which he started way back in chapter eight. Uh, this verse is a summary of everything that Paul wants the Corinthians to do. It's a summary of everything he wants us to do. Look at it, verse one of chapter 11. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And Paul's not being arrogant here. Like he's saying, he's not saying, hey, look at me, I'm doing everything perfectly. No, he's saying, to the extent that my life reflects Christ, imitates Christ, follow my example. Because Christ is the standard, right? Christ is the standard. When it comes to the matter of food sacrifice to idols and navigating gray areas in the Christian life, the way of Jesus is the way to follow. So to go back to our jazz metaphor, to put it in uh, those terms, Jesus did what Miles Davis could never do, right? Jesus is the greater Miles Davis. I, I mean no irreverence in that. Like Jesus came up with the perfect framework and then he played perfectly within it. He played flawlessly within the framework. Like what was the framework that he came up with? Well, when someone asked Jesus, hey, what are the two greatest commandments? What did he, Jesus say? Well, the first is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, everything hangs on those two commandments. That's the framework. And then Jesus played flawlessly within that. He exercised his freedom perfectly within that framework. Like, did you know that on the most stressful night of his life, when his crucifixion drew near, he prayed to the Father, Father, would you take this cup from me? But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. To God be the glory. Did you know that instead of looking out for his own interest, he looked out for the interest of others? He didn't hold on to his freedoms, he emptied himself of his freedoms. He took the form of a bondservant and he gave up his life on a cross, not just for the good of his neighbors, for the good of his enemies that they might be saved. Paul says when it comes to exercising your freedoms in the Christian life, imitate that. Imitate that, follow in the way of Jesus. And listen, we can, we can do this. We can do this because he first did it for us and now he's in us by his spirit enabling us to imitate him, to live in this way. Paul's vision is that the whole Christian community, the whole church, 
would reflect the self-giving love of Christ to the world. Can you imagine how amazing that would be if our church reflected that kind of self-giving love in, in, our, in just the everyday matters of the choices we make? If we exercised our freedoms within the framework given to us by Jesus, I think our collective effort would be a masterpiece. It would be a masterpiece. Let's pray to that end. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.